You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. We're closing out our Christmas in July series this morning. We're even looking at the good gifts that God gives us in our salvation. In the scriptures, Paul defines our salvation as an indescribable gift. And we're looking at how that's not simply heaven when you die, even though that's a massive and very important part of it. There's other gifts of the implications of that salvation uh, that God gives us. We must return to and understanding the Christmas story over and over again, uh, not just in December, but hearing and understanding the whole point of everything of why Jesus came and what all he accomplished for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our last week, Christmas in July. As if you hate something like Christmas in July, it's the last week. Fear not, we'll be in Acts next week. If you go to Oven Park like 18 times over Christmas like me, this is more your scene. Uh, so a little bit for everybody. Let's pray together, and we'll jump into Ephesians chapter 1. Our Father, we are grateful for your grace. We're grateful for the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, uh, that he came for sinners, that he came to seek and save those who are lost, to make spiritually dead people come alive, and that every person that's a Christian in this room is counted in that as your people. Let us see that as an amazing gift before we see it as anything else. That is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves. So none of us can boast. It's by grace we're saved through faith. And we are grateful for that reality. I ask that we found faithful with that information, that knowledge you've given us of who you are and how we can be forgiven of our sins through Jesus. So as you speak through me this morning, to be with all the churches in our city as they gather today, may the gospel go forward in every church. May the enemy stay out of this place and out of our city. And I ask that as a result of what we hear today, that we will be strengthened in our faith and that we will be compelled to follow Christ, the one who gave it all for us. And we're thankful for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, to close out our series, we're talking about the great gift of identity. That Jesus gives us a new identity that we possess, uh, but also to pursue at the same time. We have a new identity, and now we live in the new identity. My friend Michael Ware is a political operative in Washington, D.C., and he wrote this recently. He said, important people are insecure about how unimportant they feel here in D.C., So in Washington, where he lives, he says, important people are insecure because they feel unimportant. He said the temptation is to encourage them with affirmations of their importance. You're so special, you're so amazing, you know, fire emojis on every Instagram post they do. That's the temptation. He says, but honestly, that's no real help. The antidote to our insecurity is the affirmation of the fact that the God of the universe loves them. That that's the answer. That the creator of the universe loves you. Does that sound too simple maybe, too basic, easier said than done, I'm sure. But this really is the deep truths of the scriptures. That the creator of the universe loves us. And the story of Christmas is the story of God showing his love by his one and only son coming here. For God so loved the world that he gave. He's the great giver of gifts. He gave his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But here we are today in our society and there's an obsession with going and doing and being and becoming something. Become the best version of yourself. That's almost like the mantra of this world. Keep on moving forward, slay the day, write your own story. Basically, you're the master of your own universe. And the result of that has been a massive identity search. 
for so many people. I want to be seen as this, shown as this, them to think I'm this. Just pursue it over and over and over, switching identities often, trying to find the right one that works. Josh Howerton, a pastor in Dallas, wrote not too long ago that he believes, this is his opinion, but I agree with it, that he believes that people are no longer on a truth quest. It used to be the kind of the purpose of life was what is true, what is right, help me understand, I'm seeking truth. He says, no longer is that the case. People are now on a happiness quest. That that's the goal now. Like whatever it is that's going to make me happy, and not even long-term happy, happy in the moment. That's the goal. So leave this relationship, move to this town, get this done, changes, whatever it takes to make me someone who is happy whenever I want to feel happy in the moment. If that's appearance or your kids' activities, find identity in that, stuff, status, seeking that identity over and over again. For others, it's being seen as maybe progressive enough online, on the right side of issues. Social media may be affirming how you respond to political events, things that are happening in the world, virtue signaling. Maybe it's getting a relationship, end a relationship, whatever it could be, just craving whatever you feel like is going to make you happy in the moment. More likes, more comments, more people posting on your picture that it's stunning. Every time I see someone write stunning on someone's picture, I'm like, it's a selfie. Is it really that stunning? It's just kind of a selfie, but okay, whatever, what's your vote? I read a book recently where the author did some research, like a, like a PhD thesis, and he's interviewing teenagers about social media, and they were telling him that they know like, who liked their posts, who didn't. And if someone didn't like their post, they're wondering, is that person mad at me? Did I do something? Are they jealous? What's their problem? They just not see it? It's all consuming, happening in the world right now, thinking things are gonna make me happy if I just fill this identity. There's two questions we need to ask when it comes to identity. And the first question is, does God really accept me? Like, does he really? It's almost cliche to say, God accepts you, but, but is that actually true? Does God really accept us? But if the answer is yes, and we don't have a reason for believing why, it's merely sentimental. It's not based on any truth. So the second question is also important. Not just does God accept me, but if he does accept me, on what basis does he do so? So in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see the gift of identity God has for us and our acceptance that's found in knowing Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, as in your love for Christ and your love for the church, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Here's Paul being very pastoral here, kind of a shepherd's heart, saying, I'm praying for the people that I shepherd, that God has entrusted me with. An important role of the pastor, I'm not trying to claim that I'm Paul by any means, but an important role of pastors is to pray for the people, to pray for the members of the church, to pray for the mission of the church in our community. So Paul's about to get very practical with them about what he's praying for, and it's going to be based off of what I said the first week during Christmas in July from Ephesians chapter 1, where he told them some great doctrine, like that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. In him we have redemption, we have forgiveness, all these amazing things. In him we receive an inheritance. He's telling us all these incredible points of doctrine for us to understand what God has done for us in Jesus for our salvation. 
And now he's putting feet onto that doctrine. And he's saying, here's what I pray for you. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, like that's who he is, he's glorious, would give you the spirit of wisdom. How much do we need that today? A spirit to discern what is true versus what is false. Yes, maybe you're on a happiness quest, but you can't lose that spirit of discernment. There's someone that's messaging coming at you all the time that, we, that he's praying that God would give us by the spirit wisdom to understand the things of him compared to the things of this world. But not just that, also in revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, an understanding of who Christ is, an understanding of who God is and what he's like, what he's done for us. When you see revelation here, it's not a new revelation, it's an understanding. It's a realization of who God is. That's what he's praying for the people, that we'll have a wisdom that's guided by the spirit and where our eyes will be open in revelation to the knowledge of God. God wants us to know who he is. And what he's given us to understand that is the scriptures. Because I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now usually the word enlightenment pulls away from the faith. I'm enlightened, therefore I don't believe these things. You know, I'm enlightened, therefore you know, I am the supreme you know, understanding of reality. But in God's understanding of being enlightened, It means you're enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, as what the church shares together. And so he's not talking about monetary things there. I'll get that in just a minute. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, us, the church, according to, not our works, not our strength, the mighty working of his strength. So there's three things he's praying for them. They all pertain to where they're going to find their worth and how they're accepted by God and how they understand identity. And the first thing is that he prays they will know the hope of his calling. What is God's calling? It's a calling to himself. It's a calling to relationship with him. He wants them to be certain of what God has done for them. How for in Christ, we will always be in Christ because God by his grace is the one who brought us in. Now, the word hope in the scriptures most times is not a fingers crossed kind of hope. It's not a, I hope it snows at Christmas this year, you know, kind of understanding of hope. It's not going to, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, But it's not that kind of hope. It's a certain hope. It's I'm basing my hope on what I believe by faith to be true about Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for me. That's why when people grieve, the scriptures never tell you to stop grieving. The scriptures don't say get over it. They don't say suck it up. It says we grieve, but we don't grieve as people without hope. We have hope when we grieve, and it's a certain hope knowing that we belong to the Lord, we've been called into his family, and that all of his promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Next is, he says, I pray that you'll understand the wealth of his inheritance, that God has a great inheritance for his people we are told that one day we will share with him in all things. That's what his will be ours. We will worship God for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. We have a wealth of an inheritance as Christians. And the scriptures are very clear. It's an inheritance that will never perish, that will never go away. How amazing in a world where everything seems to be here today and gone tomorrow. We have an imperishable inheritance available for us in Christ. Then he says, I want you to know the greatness of his power. 
Not your strength, but his strength. And this power is not the kind of power to help you hit a home run or pass a test or you know, get a new job. You know, I do believe that God gives us the strength and the grace to do those things. It's the greatness of his power over the things that he has saved us from. That now giving in to certain temptations is not inevitable for us. I don't believe that we reach any kind of perfection state here on earth. I think we all still struggle in the flesh. But that temptation that seizes us is not inevitable for us to give into. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in us. We have the power of God to, be able to overcome those things. So I read this text here. I want to do what I kind of call an identity check to kind of help us think through how we view this matter in a society that's obsessed with identity. And the first thing we see here is the call to be confident in your justification. Be confident in your justification. What is justification? It's a legal term. It means you're declared not guilty. So in a Christian sense, when we receive our justification, the verdict over our lives is not guilty, even though we are guilty of so many sins. Well, how can that be? Well, Jesus, who was never guilty, who never sinned, stood in our place, took on a death that we deserve for our rebellion against God, but as not just that he died for our sins, even though that's what he first did, he also gave us his righteousness, which means that right this second, if you stood before God, you would not stand before him as some person with a mile list long of sins. You would stand before God as someone covered in the righteousness of Jesus, declared to be not guilty because Jesus, who was never guilty, was guilty in your place. In other words, you are freed fully from the penalty of sin. What does that mean about identity? You don't have to go to bed at night wondering if you've done enough if you've been good enough, if you've done enough humanitarian work, now you can go do good things and go do things that please God because of your justification, not because you're trying to earn it. Your standing before God now is secure. So if you don't have to worry about how you stand before God as a Christian, why do we worry so much about how we stand before everybody else? Like, if I don't have to sweat where I am with God, if our relationship is decided and secure because Jesus has justified me, then why do I sweat what you think all the time? And why do you sweat what the person next to you thinks all the time? If we don't have to worry about where we measure up with God, why do we have to worry about where we measure up with everybody else so often? Well, one, because we're humans. But second, because maybe we're not very confident in our justification. I know there's more to it than that. I know it's easier said than done. But it's definitely not less than that. Let's be confident in the reality of how God sees us. As people who are accepted by him. So am I accepted by God? Yes. What is the grounds of my acceptance? My justification. That he has declared me to be in right standing with him. And it was nothing of my own doing. It was all of Christ. That's why we call the gospel good news. And indeed, it is Christmas in July. It's an incredible gift to know that you are freed fully from the penalty of sin. The next thing is be patient with your sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus, of growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness. And the truth is that each day, whether you realize it or not, you're being freed from the power of sin and becoming more like Jesus. Because he said in his word that those he foreknew, he predestined, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So that's what God's doing right now. He's working out in your life the process of making you more like Jesus. 
So in your justification, you're freed from the penalty of sin. What's happening now is we're being freed from the power of sin in our lives. And God's patient with us. So if God's patient with us, will you be patient with us? As in you? Will you be patient with you since God's so patient with you? And be patient with others? Eugene Peterson, great author, referred to the Christian life as long, slow obedience in the same direction. It's patient. It takes a lifetime. And it's God's story for us that he continues to write of the circumstances in your life being worked together for those, the good of those who love God so you can become more like Jesus Christ. So as we're being confident in what God's done for us, we're being patient in the process of who he's making us and who we're becoming. Consistency is the way rather than intensity. Consistency over, over intensity. Now, every you know, self-help, wellness, whatever, sees the day blogger hates that kind of mindset. You know, it's like, get up, get the first sunlight of the day, take a cold plunge into the pool, take these 25 shakes and these 22 shots and go to bed by 10 and wake up at five and do it all over again. It's like, whoa, I'm exhausted. So much do this and do that and achieve this and seize that and go here and go there. When the reality is for most of us, it's consistency. It's not intensity. Consistency is not as sexy on Instagram, it's not. If I can get as many fire emojis and stunnings and those type of things, but it's how disciples are made. It's crock pot rather than microwave. It's how disciples are made. So it's important for you also to be around maybe older Christians, kind of senior saints you can call them, who've been living for Jesus longer than you've been alive. He will tell you, yeah, it's a long, slow obedience in the same direction. I'm still learning new things every day. They'll tell you, I'm still figuring out what it means to have faith. I'm still trying to love God and love my neighbor. I'm still trying to get there. It's a long, slow obedience in the same direction. John Tyson wrote this. In the long run, you have a much more likely chance of being consistent in your faith by reading a small section of scripture each day and praying for a few minutes than fasting two days a week and banging out the whole Bible in six months. Now, if you read the Bible in six months, great. That's wonderful. If, that's your, if you can do that, I am impressed. But for most of us, it's just consistency. It's thanking God that you remember to read your Bible today. Because how easy is it to forget and to not and to get caught up in all the other secondary identities that we forget the most important thing. So don't feel bad if it's a process. God's patient with you. So you be patient with you. And since God is patient with you, it takes a lot of nerve to not be patient with others who are also trying to figure out this thing we call the Christian life. Now, that might sound lame and go, man, the Christian life sounds kind of like a drag, long, slow obedience in the same direction. I mean, do we get a 26.2 sticker for this? Like, how does this work? Well, the reality is the third thing is how it all makes sense. I'm confident in my justification. I'm patient in my sanctification as I anticipate your glorification. That there is an end in sight and the end is actually forever. It is eternity. That heaven actually is a real place for real people go and the great gift God gives us is that he has secured it for us in Jesus. 
So we're not walking around going, when's this going to end? We're also not fatalists. We're not people who just go, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. It's all, the end is going to be the end. No, like we live our lives confidently because of Christ. We live our lives actively living in patience in our sanctification because we're anticipating what is to come. He says this, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. So Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection. By raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given. We sweat titles a whole lot in our society. He's saying Jesus is bigger and has a better title than any title that's ever been given. Not only in this age, as there's no expiration date on it. There's an expiration date on your title here on earth. There's no expiration date on Christ's rule. Also for the age to come. So in other words, why don't you put your hope in him rather than in a different identity? If I put my identity in being the pastor of this church, which is easy to do, it's easy to do, trust me. He says here that Jesus' title is bigger than any title, not only in this age. So it means I'd be putting my identity in a title that's only in this age. And it's actually less than this age, so I'm gonna retire one day, I hope. So you get a young guy up here that can keep this thing going. A lot of them have preached this past few weeks, done a pretty good job, haven't they? Got some good people up in here. That's right, aren't you thankful? Yeah, so to have nothing encouraging more than seeing young guys step in the pulpit and get after it, I love it. This 42-year-old aging man loves it. So why would I put myself and I'm asking myself this question, why would I put my identity in something that has an expiration date? It doesn't mean it isn't important, it still matters. Why would I put ultimate hope in that? Why would I put my hope in the one who never has an expiration date? And that's the title of Christ, in his reign and rule and his person and his rule for all time. Because he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Jesus is ruling, which means that you don't have to. Jesus is in charge, so it means that I don't necessarily have to be and you don't either to find fulfillment. He's ruling, thankfully, so we don't have to. A few takeaways here about identity, and it's just, this, you could do three months on this, but it's kind of in one package here. Just some kind of observations that I just want to, based on what we just read here, what we understand about our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. The first thing is, and this is especially for the younger crowd here, you are not a brand. I'm not talking about your business or your job. That's different. I understand there's elements of that. You personally are not a brand. You are a human being who was made in the image of God. So if you're not a brand, quit thinking about yourself that way all the time. But that's not who you are. Like you, you don't need to be a different character online than you are in real life. Like you don't need to find your worth in that. That's going to expire and it's going to make you miserable because you're going to feel like you're on a treadmill all the time going 100 miles an hour to try to present something and achieve something while never actually going anywhere besides a little bit of admiration here and there. Like you're not a brand. So don't live like that and don't think like that. The second thing is, when it comes to your faith, think about your faith in terms of what I just walked you through. Think about your faith in terms of justification, sanctification, glorification. But let that be the lens you kind of see your faith through rather than emotional experiences in like Christian Instagram influencer language. It like sounds really good, but it's like a mile wide and like a, a centimeter thick, like it's just really not deep at all. I'm not saying everybody's gotta be these really deep Christians, I'm not saying that. 
What I'm saying is think about your faith in the fact of what God's done for you. You're now freed from the penalty of sin. That burden's not on you anymore. You don't got to go to bed at night saying, did I say enough Hail Marys today? You know how many Hail Marys you need to say to be forgiven of your sins? Zero. You can still do it if it means a lot to you. Jesus is the one who has forgiven you of your sins once and for all. Isn't that good news? And that's not knocking anybody. It's hopefully relieving people from the burdens that are on us. You don't got to get saved five times at a Baptist church. You know how many people like went forward and like gave their lives to Christ like every three months because they were scared they were going to hell? You don't have to do that. Why? Because you have confidence in your justification. Now you're in the period of sanctification, being a part of God's mission, becoming more like Christ, making like the process of it. Think of that phase as now. Ups and downs. Growing in grace. Increasing your faith. And then ultimately you know where you're going and your glorification. So think of your faith in that kind of realm rather than just kind of experiences of, of, and, and influencer language. That's just, it's very kind of modern, affluent, last 10 years kind of stuff. And we have the faith that's been delivered once and for all to the saints available to us in the scriptures. The next thing is secondary identities are still identities, but they're not ultimate. They're not ultimate. People love to call everything a community now. It's like, you know, the Italian barbers from the east side community. It's like, well, that candidate, that candidate needs to secure the farmers from South Dakota community vote, and then they'll be successful. It's like everything's a community now, right? Like everybody wants to put their identity in something, some group, something. I don't think it's terrible. I think it can be harmless unless it becomes a primary identity. That's when the issue begins to happen. Refuse to put ultimate worth in things that are secondary. There's such a temptation to do that. I'm well aware of that. The next thing is, and this really is important, you matter to God. But the story of Christmas in July and the rest of the year is that God has proven his love for you and that Christ has come for us. Like, you matter to him. He's not holding your sins over your head. He has redeemed you from them. Like, you matter to him. Instead of Quote Taylor Swift, we need to go back to December all the time uh, because that's a reminder of God's love for us over and over again. And remember that Jesus is the one who rules and Jesus is the one who reigns, which means that I don't have to. The pressure's off of me. Last uh, month, I took my oldest son, Tommy, to a Cincinnati Reds series in Cincinnati. See one of our friends who plays the Reds, who's a member of our church here. And we had a great father-son trip. It was a lot of fun. Well, speaking of Taylor, so she was in concert in Cincinnati at the time. We didn't know that. Uh, so we wound up having to stay an hour and a half away to get a hotel. It's like, thanks, Taylor. Uh, so that, that was a little interesting there. We had to drive to Louisville every night and back for the games because of Taylor Swift. Every hotel was sold out. Uh, but one thing is interesting is when you're in Cincinnati, Cincinnati is right on the Kentucky border. I mean, like, this foot, you're in Cincinnati, and this foot, you're in Kentucky. I mean, like, they're, they're just really right there. So Cincinnati is very Midwest, not like the South at all. You know, it's, it's just mid, think kind of Midwest culture. I don't know how to really explain it. It's just, it's just not Southern. Uh, and it, it is, is what it is, a Midwest town. It's a great city. Well, Florence, Kentucky is right across the border. And Florence, Kentucky is Cincinnati. I mean, it's like they work in Cincinnati. They root for the Bengals. They root for the Reds. The airport for Cincinnati is in Kentucky. I mean, like, it's Cincinnati. But when you pull across the bridge and go across the border into Kentucky. It says, welcome to Florence, y'all. They have a minor league baseball team called the Florence Y'alls. 
because they want to say to you, we're Southern. We're not Ohio. We're Kentucky. We're the South. And you're sitting here going, okay, the rest of Kentucky is very Southern. Outside of Louisville and Lexington, it's very rural, farmland, horse farms. I mean, like very sweet tea, like all, all the things, right? I, like all, all the things. And, but Florence, Kentucky, it's Cincinnati. But don't tell them. Because they really want you to believe and think that they're Southern and they're Kentucky. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually kind of clever marketing. I think it's great. I laugh a little bit. Like everything's like all of a sudden like transforms over. It's like there's like 25 cracker barrels per mile. It's like, what is happening here, right? Here's the whole point. For them, that's harmless. What are you trying to project? Like, what, what are you really, like, what brand are you trying to push out there in this world? Like, what are you trying to communicate about yourself, about your kids, about your life, your, even your faith? Like, like, what are you trying to prove? Like, what are you trying to show people? And the follow-up question to that is, what's going on in here that makes you feel like you have to do that? Like, what's going on? And don't beat yourself up over it. Remember, we're patient in our sanctification because God's patient with us. But instead, the Bible also calls us to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, if you're walking with the Lord. So sometimes we take time out, especially in the culture we live in today, and go, hey, where are areas in my life where I'm letting the world be my desire? Rather than being confident in my justification, patient in my sanctification, anticipating my glorification, like I, I, want, I want to be seen a certain way and known a certain way and admired a certain way by temporary things. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to care about secondary identities. But how quickly, 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 our entire lives can become making sure everybody knows we're Kentucky when we pass across the border from Ohio, when really, we're Cincinnati. It's okay to be Cincinnati. It's okay. But here's the good news. We are a part of something, and have an identity in something that can never be taken away and is consistent and is not based on us or in seeking approval. It's based on an approval that already exists because of what Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, where the father looks at the son and says, this is my son, and him I'm well pleased. So God's pleased with you because he's pleased with Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, will we rest in that reality and return to Christmas to remember the lengths that God has go, gone to through generations of promises to redeem a people to himself. All of his promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll close out by taking the Lord's Supper to end this series. Our Father, we are thankful that our identity can actually be found in Christ. And we know that's exhaustive and hard to even fully define and comprehend, but we know that the other things we're trying to contend for in this world were never designed to fulfill us, because they were never worthy of our worship. So I ask we'll be good worshipers, as in people who moment by moment realize and recognize your grace in our lives and respond to it in faithfulness. So because of our justification, let us be confident in the fact that we really are freed from the penalty of sin. In our sanctification, Lord, I ask you to keep us encouraged that you are freeing us from the power of sin, and that one day in our glorification, we'll be freed forever from the presence of sin. It's so hard to comprehend. How indescribable is your gift. How glorious is your great name. 
Let's see people who refuse to believe there's more to be gained by disobeying you than there is to be gained by obeying you. Let us refuse to believe we have to go around you for all the things we're looking for in our life rather than right to you. And on this happiness quest that many are on, Lord, I ask you to use that to help them see the truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And I thank you that we can look back at the incarnation as in the Son of God here, coming to earth, to understand your love for us, your great saving plan, and remind us over and over again of who you are and what you've done for us. Let us rest confidently in that. In the name of Jesus, amen.